Welcome to the Dragonlance Saga Gaming Saga System episode. This is the sixth episode in the Advanced Dungeons in the Saga System series. I clearly didn't update that. It is Braca Gildember. I don't even think that's right. The 15th, and my name is Adam. Now, I'm starting a Saga System Dragonlance 5th Age role-playing game next weekend. So I thought it would be fun to read the core rules aloud and discuss them with the live audience. I would like to take a moment and thank the members of this channel and invite you to consider becoming a member. You can also pick up Dragonlance gaming materials using my affiliate link. Both links are in the description below. <clears throat> Pardon me. So if you've never played Saga System, this is a uh, dramatic change <laughs> from Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 1st and 2nd edition. Book of the Fifth Age, the dramatic adventure game of legendary heroes, terrible villains, and great dragons. Authors forward. Welcome to Kryn, home of the Dragonlance Fifth Age dramatic adventure game. This role-playing game allows you to assume the personas of great heroes undertaking epic quests. You can even play characters from Dragonlance novels. In this game, players explore the wondrous continent of Ancelon, a land ravaged by the fire of dragon wars, shaped by the raw courage of heroes and inspired by the passions of its living legends. If you're already familiar with the role-playing games, you'll find the new Saga rules an easy-to-learn, fast-playing system. For those new to this type of game, it won't take long before you're ready to embark upon adventures limited only by your imagination. Innovations the Saga rules boast quite a few elements that distinguish this role-playing game from other fantasy systems. The Hand of Fate. While many adventurous games use dice or other random number generators to determine the outcome of actions, the hero's attempt, the Fifth Age game employs the Saga rules. This system, tailor-made for the Dragonlance setting, revolves around the Fate deck of cards. During the game, every player holds cards, his hand of fate. When his hero attempts any feat, the player selects the card to use from his hand. Thus, one can hold back good cards until critical junctures in the scenario. Roles versus Rules In a dramatic game such as this one, rules should never get in the way of playing one's role. The Fifth Age game has been designed with an eye towards drama and role-playing, not complex game mechanics. Throughout this book, you'll discover rules techniques, that re, uh, rules techniques that reinforce this philosophy. The saga rules all focus on streamlining mechanics and giving the players more control over his hero and the storyline. For instance, the Fifth Age game deals with concepts such as character movement, time passage, and magic use in an abstract freeform method. It uses no game board battle map, spell lists, or other limiting elements. Thus, Drama and role-playing take the place of odds calculation and constant table reading. While it isn't possible to eliminate rules entirely, the Fifth Age game doesn't let them interfere with role-playing. Many of the duties that traditionally have fallen on the shoulders of the Game Master, or narrator, now are left up to the players. This leaves the narrator free to focus on the drama and pacing of an adventure, giving it a literary flavor reminiscent of the saga's best novels. Last words. The best part about my job is knowing that many people work hard to make a game look good, and then I get to put my name on it. 
Don't be deceived by that. Many other folks did as much work on the saga rules as I did, and the most important of whom are Harold Johnson, Sue Weinlein Cook, and Skip Williams. If the world were fair, their signatures would be right beside mine. Of course, we have our table of contents, give you an idea where we're going to be going. Just skipping over that. Prologue. Now is begun what will be known on Kryn as the Age of Mortals. It will be the final age, I think. The final, the longest, and perhaps the best. Fizban to Palin and Usha, Dragons of Summer Flame. Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman's novel Dragons of Summer Flame ushered in a new age for the Dragonlance world. In the wake of the devastation caused by the war with chaos, life on Kryn could never be the same again. Such dramatic changes demanded a new game. Components. The best way to begin an introduction to the Dragonlance Fifth Age game is to take a look at its various elements. The Book of the Fifth Age. This book details the game's saga rules system. Future Fifth Age supplements will include optional expansions to this core system, but this book explains the heart of the saga rules and offers creative players a lifetime of adventure. Dusk or Dawn. Book two in this box, subtitled Ancelon in the Fifth Age, provides a wealth of information about the past and present of this continent. This guidebook also details its most famous heroes and villains, both man and dragon. Narrators should make sure their players don't read sections that contain information they wish to keep secret from them. Heroes of a New Age The box's third book is an introductory adventure in the Fifth Age. The action begins in the realm of Abanasinia, an area already familiar to readers of Dragonlance books as the meeting place of the famed Heroes of the Lance. The Fate Deck A pack of 82 cards makes up the Fate Deck. This deck, which depicts major figures of the Dragonlance saga, past and present, comprises eight suits of nine cards each and one suit of ten. The first eight suits represent the abilities of Kryn's humanoid races, swords for strength, moon for reason, etc. The ninth, the suit of dragons, is tied to the current reptilian lords of the land. These cards govern many aspects of the game, so players will quickly become familiar with them. Other Components Eighteen character cards provide game details and background for many of the major heroes and villains of the Fifth Age, as well as some new adventurers. Players who would rather not create their own heroes can assume the role of any one of these characters. Also included is a poster map depicting the continent of Ancelon for player reference, and folded reference card containing information helpful to the narrator. Campaign Overview Prior to the publication of this game, readers could explore the world of Kryn primarily during the ages of Dream, Might, and Despair. The novel Dragons of Summer Flame propels the world forward to its next great age. Thirty years have passed since men and dragons defeated the Chaos God and the pantheon of Kryn withdrew from the world, believing themselves the only gods left to the beleaguered planet after this Chaos War. Good and evil worms waged a great battle the Dragon Purge, which gave them, gave them control of much of Ancelon. The nature of magic changed beyond recognition with the withdrawal of the gods of magic and the loss of Kryn's three moons. The world's recent history is presented in greater detail in Chapter 1 of Dusk or Dawn. Even the passage of time is recorded differently, for this is the Fifth Age, the Age of Mortals, an Age of Hope. Dragons Relatively few dragons managed to survive the Dragon Purge. In fact, of perhaps 
50 dragons left on Ancelon, half cloistered themselves away in hidden sanctuaries. Many of those dragons that do remain, titans of their kind, came to Ancelon from far faraway land across the sea. Indeed, so powerful are these great dragons, larger and more aggressive than dragons of the Fourth Age, that whole nations have fallen before them. Through the use of powers unheard of in ages past, they have caused far-reaching changes in the geography and climate of the lands they have claimed. Just a quick note on that, we always have to remember that um, the War of Souls trilogy was written after Dragonlands Fifth Age had already been in print for a very long time, so that changed where the dragons actually came from. Rather than being distant, far-off land across the sea, it actually came from completely different places in space. <laughs> so it's just interesting reflecting back on this system and comparing contrasting it to the Fifth Age that we know that's post-War of Souls. Magic. After the devastating final battle of the Chaos War, a disheartened young wizard named Palin Majir asked the avatar of the god Paladine whether magic remained in the world. Fizban told him that the gods of magic had gone, but added enigmatically that there might be other magic waiting to be discovered. Many have speculated since that upon departing, the gods gifted their world with new types of magic. In a sense, this True, uh, this is true. The magic of the Age of Mortals is so ancient as to seem brand new. Sorcery. Today in the Fifth Age, people practice two types of magic. The first of these is sorcery, which draws not upon the teachings of the departed gods of magic, but upon the ages old power that infused Kryn at the time of creation. Certain magical creatures, particularly dragons, are rich with this enduring power. Others, like men, must work hard to seize and manipulate it. Without the aid of the gods of magic to control this ambient magical energy, the sorcerers of the Fifth Age are less powerful than their forebears. With the traditional orders of magic now defunct, modern sorcerers learn their skills at the Academy of Sorcery run by Palin Majir. Even he has much to learn about the magic of sorcery, however. It may yet prove more powerful than anyone suspects. The masters of sorcery on Kryn are the three archmages who make up the last conclave. Two of these sorcerers, the Master of Wayworth's Tower of High Sorcery and Palin Majir, practice wizardly magic in the Fourth Age. The third, however, is a mysterious figure known only as the Shadow Sorcerer. The true identity of this powerful masked character remains unknown. Of course, it was revealed in Dragon, uh, War of Souls who it was. Mysticism. In addition to the ancient magic of sorcery, what appears to be a new spiritual magic has come into the world. This mysticism is fueled by the strength of the human heart, the power of pure emotion and faith. Mysticism emphasizes appreciating the sanctity of life and finding one's inner strength through meditation. Its practitioners can heal themselves and others without, with effort and employ their other mystical abilities for the good of all mankind. The study of mysticism has spread from a nexus called the Citadel of Light on the Isle of Chalcy. The mistress of this modern-day temple is Goldmoon, a hero of the Lance who some say has lived beyond, uh, beyond her years through her mastery of mysticism. Some whisper that a dark form of mysticism has emerged from the modern nation of Naraka. Built on the emotions of hate and anger, this power would embody all that is corrupt in the human spirit. Whether these stories are true remains to be seen, but it certainly seems possible 
that a sufficiently sinister heart could reverse the positive energy of mysticism. So let's look at some of these important terms. Before proceeding, readers should familiarize themselves with some key terms used in the Fifth Age game. Narrator. A narrator guides the players through the game's scenario. It is his job to plan the adventure, answer rules questions, and play the roles of characters and monsters the heroes may meet. In the if the group includes new players, the narrator should help them become familiar with the game's system. Character. Fictional individuals called characters behave according to the will of the narrator rather than the players. In most cases, characters either aid or challenge the heroes during the game. Hero. A hero is a fictional individual whose actions are controlled by one of the players. These protagonists should have no ties that prevent them from seizing an opportunity for adventure. Abilities. All Fifth Age characters and heroes are defined by abilities, such as strength, agility, intelligence, and similar characteristics. Each quality contains, uh, carries a number, I'm sorry, a numeric ability score and an alphabetic ability code. These indicators rated heroes' natural talent and training and skills based on each ability. Looking at these ability scores and codes helps a player decide whether to make his hero a burly warrior or a canny sorcerer or a bit of both. Chapter 1 discusses abilities in detail. Action. An action refers to any attempt by a character or hero to do something. When a hero tries to scale a wall, for example, he's attempting an action. When he tries to strike a draconian with a sword or cast a spell, he's attempting an action. Chapter 3 describes how to attempt actions using the saga rules. How's it going, Arrakis? Uh, thanks for joining live. Michael, what is up? Trump. The saga rules use a few traditional playing card terms, such as the Trump suit. A card is considered Trump when its suit and associated ability is directly relevant to the current situation in play. For example, any card from the suit of swords is Trump for an action that requires strength the ability associated with swords. Playing a trump card gives a hero a trump bonus, which increases his chance of success at a given action. See chapter three. I'm doing great. Dragonlance Tales. Every fifth age adventure contains certain qualities that capture the heroic flavor of the Dragonlance saga. Character depth, each adventure should give players a chance to be creative with their heroes. Events should encourage them to discover or invent some aspect of their hero's personality or history and share it with other players. A hero grows more and more detailed as the player learns his loves, desires, hopes, and fears. In time, players will see that this hero is unlike anyone else on Kryn. Good versus Evil Ancelon is a land of good and terrible evil. Great good and terrible evil. From the heroic knights of Salamnia to the terrible Malastrix, the most powerful red dragon known to man. Heroes will find allies and enemies everywhere. A Dragonlance adventure should always drive home the presence of this moral spectrum. For one reason or another, the heroes find themselves charged with facing and defeating the evils of the world. Even heroes who have a dark side, like the great wizard Raceland Majir, recognize that the unchecked power of Malastrix and similar evil creatures spells disaster for them, as well as for the good things of the world. This doesn't mean that heroes or players should see Kryn only in terms of black and white, good or evil. 
Steel Brightblade, son of the valiant Knight of Salamnia and a sinister dragon highlord, is a fine example of a character who combines elements of both sides. Shades of Grey exist, especially in the Fifth Age. In adventures, a narrator can use many tactics to bring these truths into play. For example, he uses he usually provides heroes with an enemy they think has few, if any, redeeming qualities, such as one of the evil dragons. At the same time, the heroes rely upon allies who represent all that is good to the world. Perhaps the finest example of such a character is Goldmoon, whose Citadel of Light has become a great force of good in Ancelon. For the most part, however, the folk whom heroes meet while adventuring falls somewhere in the middle. They might encounter knights of Tachesis, who consider the law and order they provide crucial to the rebuilding of the land, such as a character need not be cruel or otherwise typical of these dark knights. He might even prove <laughs> something of a hero. On the other hand, an adventuring group might encounter a knight of Salamnia who doubts the way of her valiant order and is, in actuality, more of a villain. A player defines his hero's place in the continuum of good and evil during hero creation, see chapter 1. The other characteristics should be as multifaceted as the heroes. After all, few real people have personalities one can sum up in just one or two words. By introducing individuals with diverse interests into his adventure, the narrator makes all his characters, both good and evil, seem more real. Romance. What would a Dragonlance tale be? without romance. The legends of Kryn are filled with tragic affairs between star-crossed lovers, passion so strong that it transcends even death, and the chaste adore adoration of a knight for his lady. A good Fifth Age adventure should be equally endowed. Romance, not unrequited love or jealousy, can cause conflict during adventures, or even spark new ones. Sometimes love blooms between a hero and a character such as a local merchant. Such encounters often involve in, uh, into sources of wonderful exchanges between the narrator and the hero's player. In addition, a pleasant romantic aside can moderate the pace of an otherwise hectic adventure and help add to a hero's background. Romances may spring up between two heroes, too. For example, a player may decide that his young Kergothian nobleman hero loses his heart to the female knight of Salamnia in the group when she rescues him from danger. These alliances can prove entertaining for everyone in the game, especially if both players make the most of their role-playing opportunities. Tragedy. Tragedy exists in the, in the annals of Kryn alongside high adventure and fiery romance. No life is without suffering, and no prize is won without a prize. Dragonlance heroes mature through the tragic events of their adventures. They may change the world, but in the process, they experience loss and their eyes are open to the presence of evil. However, narrators must not let adventures become angst-ridden ordeals. Heroes may suffer, but they seldom whine about it. Tragedy often works best combined with romance. The story of a knight who has lost his lady to an assassin's arrow and now hunts the killer over land and sea can play very powerfully. Heroism good or evil, angst-ridden or love-struck, heroes are valiant people who face impossible odds, unbeatable foes, and incredible dangers without blinking. No Fifth Age game is complete until the heroes have had a chance to show their courage. Whether it's battling gruesome monsters, evading diabolical traps, or thwarting sinister schemes, he heroism is the most essential element in any Dragonlance story.
the player's task. Although it's the narrator's job to inject many of the above touches into a Dragonlance Fifth Age campaign, players also have key responsibilities to make each game session a success. Role-playing. Role-playing games let players pretend to shed their normal attitudes and traits and for the duration of the game, play a unique role, possibly a role very different from the player's personality. Adopting the demeanor, habits, reactions, fixations, strengths, and weaknesses of one hero is more than just freedom from one's own personality, however. Like professional actors and actresses, players owe a responsibility to their chosen role. When a player creates a hero, see chapter one, he gives the hero a distinct personality. It's crucial to the success of the game that the player remains true to those unique traits. For instance, if a hero, I'm sorry, if a player has created a brave but naive warrior, he should make his hero act like a brave but naive warrior. This may mean that he has the hero charge into battle before the rest of the party is ready, attack a monster that's far more powerful than he is, or take time out from an important mission to watch a duel between two knights. Acting in a manner that fits the personality of one's hero, even if it involves some foolish behavior now and then, makes the game more fun for everyone. Before long, players will feel like they know each other's heroes, a familiarity that creates sponta uh, spontaneous interaction in character. Over the course of the game, the group's role-playing makes the evolving story unique as each type of personality approaches its challenges differently. Of course, role-playing should never interfere with the flow of the adventure. Players should remember that a good game involves give and take. A self-centered player who uses up too much of the narrator's time on his own hero's actions slows down the game for everyone. A talented role player makes the most of a few choice moments during the, adventures, uh, during the adventure to display his hero's strengths and weaknesses. Cooperation. Teamwork is vital part of the Fifth Age game. Just as the Heroes of the Lance working together defeated the Queen of Darkness during the Fourth Age, so too can the Heroes of today change the world. To work as a team towards a common goal, players must put aside any differences they or their heroes might have. Heroes support and aid their comrades at all costs. Fighting within the ranks only weakens the group's mission. Cooperation between players rather than competition that makes role-playing games special. Of course, players must cooperate with the narrator too. Long before a game session actually begins, the narr narrator has created characters, drawn maps, and detailed the adventure's plot. All this can be easily ruined by a single uncooperative player. Certainly, a hero can behave as his player decides, but not at the cost of the adventure. If the narrator has worked hard to establish a story that takes place in the deep halls of Mount Nevermind, but the players refuse to travel there, all his effort was for nothing. Again, heroism. There is a good reason why the fictional roles players assume during the game are called heroes. These people are supposed to act heroically. Heroes are larger than life. They do things that normal people can't do or wouldn't try. Heroes may be knights, or cobblers, farmers, or shopkeepers. But no matter what their profession, they have one thing in common. They seek adventure. Heroes are not hermits, unless they allow events to draw them out of their reclusive existence into a new life of quests and excitement. In fact, 
Many heroes may begin in an, an adventure with several quests already completed. Of course, heroes do go shopping, mend their clothes, and undertake other mundane tasks. However, these things are dealt with offstage. Routinely incorporating such ordinary aspects of daily life into the game only slows things down and detracts from the adventure. Heroes should act with purpose and some degree of honor. They don't run around beating up helpless people, robbing graves, or performing other unseemly acts. They may appear sinister, greedy, or even cowardly at times, but they show their mettle when the lives of their friends are on the line. In short, heroes must be heroic. Chapter 1 a woman like no other he had ever seen in his life stood in the doorway. Masses of silver hair framed a face that was alluring, kept its secrets, yet by the wide, eager, golden eyes seemed to require that others give to her all of their own mysteries. Her clothes, made of brilliant, uh, brightly colored flowing silk, were outlandish, like no well-read woman in his part of the country would have worn. Yet they suited her. She was an exotic as entrancing as if she'd fallen from a star. Palin Majir meets Usha, Dragons of Summer Flame. Armed with a basic understanding of their role in the Dragonlands Fifth Age game, players can create their own heroes to populate the continent of Anselon with the help of the narrator. Novices may want to play one Fifth Age, event Fifth Age adventure before creating their own heroes. Many of the figures in this game's 18 character cards would make excellent heroes for new players. Players can alter the names or genders. However, even those using pre-generated heroes should review this chapter for important background. Creating a Hero To get a feel for this part of the game, players should create their heroes using this chapter's 10-step process. The Hero Sheet A blank form called the Hero Sheet has been printed on the back cover of this book. Players should use a photocopy of the sheet to keep track of the most important details about their heroes. Step 1. Hand of Fate Hero creation begins with the narrator dealing a hand of 12 fate cards to each player. The cards in a Hand of Fate allow players to piece together their new fictional heroes. It doesn't matter if a player keeps these cards to himself or lets others see them. However, players may not exchange cards. Once players have looked over their hands of cards, they should sort them either by suit or from highest to lowest. In most cases, a group of players can all create their heroes at once. However, if the group is larger than four or five players, the narrator may want to create heroes with only half of them at a time. Step 2. Personality From his hand, each player selects two cards he will use to define the opposing forces that govern his hero's personality. The first of these, demeanor, indicates how a hero acts and describes the face he presents to the outside world. In a sense, the demeanor is the way the hero wants others to perceive him. The other part of a hero's personality is his true nature. One's nature suggests how he feels in his heart and can often contrast greatly with his demeanor. Such a difference might represent a hero struggling to overcome his darker half, or one attempting to hide his true identity by posing as someone else. It's the player's choice. When selecting the personality cards from his hand of fate, a player ignores their numeric values in favor of the qualities written across the top. 
traits exemplified by the character pictured on the card. For example, the One of Swords features a portrait of the Salamnic Knight Sturm Brightblade. It indicates two of the character's qualities, courageous and inspiring. Any player should be glad to use this card for his hero's demeanor and nature. Strategy. It's a good idea to use low-numbered cards in the two personality spaces, saving higher ones for ability scores. After selecting the personality cards, players should write one or both traits, player's preference, in the appropriate spaces, indicating the card's suit icon and number in the boxes to the right. Then they turn the two cards face down on the table to show that they've been used. Step 3. Quests and Reputation after defining a hero's personality, the player moves on to determine his adventuring experience by selecting a third card and writing its numeric value in the box marked Quests. This number indicates how many adventures, or similar important events, a hero has completed prior to beginning play. The more quests a character has accomplished, the greater a reputation he enjoys at the start of play. Bards will sing songs about his bravery, women will gossip about their trysts with him, and children will make believe that they are the hero. Players with famous heroes hold more cards in their hand during play, which gives their heroes a greater chance of triumphing over enemies and surviving other hazards. Strategy Players should use cards from the suit of dragons in this space, as they hold drawbacks if assigned elsewhere. It's also generally not a good idea to assign a card with a value below 4 to the quest's box. Heroes with just a couple of quests under their belt have very few cards to call on during play and often find themselves trapped in situations that more experienced heroes could easily escape. The following table lists the reputation categories associated with various quest totals, as well as the number of cards a given reputation allows the player to hold in his hand during the game. I'm not going to read through each of these, but you will notice that there is an asterisk next to it. Heroes gain reputations beyond champion only by adventuring. New heroes may have up to 10 quests maximum. Only the numeric value on the card played for the quests box really matters. For role-playing purposes, however, a player may want to note the card's suit icon. The suit's associated meaning might suggest the general nature of the quest the hero has undertaken. For instance, using a hearts card might indicate the passion drove the hero to complete his past adventures. Step 4. Wealth and Social Status Having established his hero's level of fame, or perhaps infamy, the player can move on to determine his wealth. Some heroes go on adventures to earn enough coin to pay for dinner, while others relax in opulent castles and adventure only for the fun of it. Looking over the nine cards left in his hand of fate, a player selects one card and records its number and suit in the box marked Wealth on his hero sheet. The number of the card gives the player an indication of his hero's resources at the start of the game. These range from Absolute Poverty, 1, to Filthy Rich, 9. Strategy A player might use a card from the suit of dragons in this space to avoid the drawbacks associated with playing them elsewhere. The suit of the chosen card might tell the player how his hero came to be in his current financial situation. For example, a player selecting the Seven of Swords clearly has a fairly wealthy hero. Since the suit of swords represents strength in combat, one might assume that he, or perhaps his father or mother, had served in the knighthood and accumulated wealth over the course of several battles. At the start of play, a hero's wealth is assumed to be a reflection of his social status. 
As the hero adventures, fate may increase or decrease his wealth without affecting his status. The table below indicates the social status associated with each degree of wealth. And we can see the chart here of social status. The reputation thing makes you wonder if playing a lawful evil character and completing the major quest, does he become an anti-hero, kind of like Magneto? I would imagine so, but this game sort of encourages you not to be a lawful evil type of character. Step five, ability scores. Every hero in the Dragonlance Fifth Age game is defined in part by a set of numbers known as ability scores. These are each, uh, I'm sorry, these are eight, there are eight such scores evenly divided into two categories, physical abilities and mental abilities. These abilities are further grouped into four pairs of related abilities. Ability scores range between one, the worst, and nine, the best, with a score of five considered average for a human being. In rare cases, a player might assign the Ten of Dragons card to an ability score. Some characters or creatures, such as dragons, might also have scores outside this range, too. Each ability score has an associated card suite in the Fate deck, as presented in the ability descriptions below. Physical Abilities A hero's physical ability scores, grouped under the related abilities of coordination and physique, give the players an overall idea of his hero's athleticism and level of physical fitness. Coordination. Those who picture their characters as keen-eyed archers or nimble rogues should assign above-average scores to their agility and dexterity, the related coordination abilities. Agility. Agility measures the speed of a hero's reflexes and his degree of natural athletic ability. Those with high agility scores can easily dodge missile attacks, climb walls, and usually land on their feet when they take a tumble. Skilled acrobats and nimble fighters like Tika Whalen Majir have high scores in agility, represented by the suit of shields. Dexterity. The dexterity score gauges a hero's hand-eye coordination and gives a player a good feel for his ability to do fine work. Talent in the former helps a hero employ missile weapons like bows or crossbows. Heroes good at close work can pick locks, palm small objects, or indulge in sleight of hand. Skilled archers like Tannis Half Elven generally have high dexterity scores, as do members of the Kender or Elf races. Appropriately, the suit of arrows is linked to dexterity. Physique. If the player envisions his hero as a great warrior, he'll want good scores in the related physique ability of endurance and strength. Endurance. A hero's endurance score indicates his overall health and stamina. People with high endurance scores are highly resistant to pain, sickness, poisons, fatigue, etc. In combat, a hero uses his endurance score to resist attacks made with melee weapons. Rugged adventurers like Kermin Majir are often noted for their high endurance scores, as are many non-human races like dwarves. The suit of helms represents endurance. Or suite of helms. Strength. The strength score measures the hero's physical might and muscular development. One also uses strength to attack a foe with melee weapons like swords or axes. Legendary warriors such as Sturm Brightblade often have high strength scores, as do many inhuman creatures like minotaurs, centaurs, and ogres. Strength is symbolized by the suite of swords. 
mental abilities. A hero scores on his mental abilities. The related pairs of intellect and essence reveal much about his intellectual and emotional capabilities. Intellect. Sages, sorcerers, and other clever or wise folk all rate highly in the intelligent abilities. I'm sorry, intellect abilities, reason and perception. Reason. A hero's reason score relates, uh, rates his logical problem-solving abilities and the strength of his mind. In addition, reason allows one to learn and master the science of sorcery. Characters with high reason scores include wizards like Raceland Majir and great sages such as Astinus of Palanthus. The suite of moons, long associated with the practice of high sorcery, is tied to reason. Perception Perception indicates a hero's alertness and sensory acuity. People with high perception scores seldom find themselves surprised by attackers and often notice details that others miss. Those who remain keenly aware of the world around them prove less vulnerable to many magical attacks, too. Skilled outdoorsmen and scouts like the barbarian hero of the lance Riverwind have high perception scores. Some heroes may even enjoy one or two especially acute senses, while others might suffer from below-average senses. The suite of orbs corresponds to perception. Essence Healers, priests, nobles, and mystics have good scores in spirit and presence. The paired essence abilities. Spirit The spirit score defines a hero's emotional strength. It measures the mercy and compassion of good heroes, but indicates the depths of an evil character's corruption. Mysticism, which springs from the power of the heart, is driven by one's spirit. Truly passionate people, like Goldmoon of the Kueishu, have high spirit scores. The suite of hearts is linked to spirit. Presence. The last ability score on the hero sheet is presence, which indicates the force of the hero's personality. Those with high presence scores make good generals and find that others look upon them with respect and admiration, even fear. Great leaders like the Dragon High Lord Verminard or the legendary Golden General Lorana have high presence scores. The self-assurance that comes with presence helps a hero more readily defend himself against mystic magic. Presence relates to the suite of crowns. Determining Ability Scores at this point, the player should still hold eight cards in his Hand of Fate. Now, he assigns each of these to one of his emerging hero's abilities, writing each card's number in its proper ability score box. For example, a player chooses the Eight of Orbs as his Strength card, gives his hero a Strength score of eight. Strategy Players receive bonuses in Step 6 for matching the hero's abilities with cards of their corresponding suites. For example, a sword's card for strength. If the player has no card of the proper suite, the next best match are a card from the suite of the related ability, a helm's card for strength, or the same ability category, a physical card rather than a mental one. Dragon's cards should be the last choice. The next step of hero creation explains why. In addition, players want to assign their highest number cards to their absolute I hit the wrong button. <laughs> uh, highest number of cards to their... All right, now i got to remind myself what it was. Um, yeah. Okay. In addition, players want to assign their highest numbered cards to their abilities. 
Throughout the game, players will have the ability to increase their hero's ability scores to reflect the expertise they gain as the adventure continues. Step 6. Ability Codes In addition to a numeric, a numeric score, every hero has a one-letter ability code assigned to each of his eight abilities. If his ability score represents his natural talent or prowess in a particular area, his ability code represents his training and learned skills in that area. For example, the code associated with the hero's strength indicates how much training he has received in the use of melee weapons. Similarly, the code associated with the hero's reason indicates his familiarity with the art of sorcery. As with ability scores, a hero may improve an ability code during play. Determining Ability Codes Since the player has already assigned cards to his hero's abilities, he can easily figure out the hero's ability codes. If the card assigned to an ability matches that ability's associated suite, the player checks off the box for the A code. For example, a card from the suite of swords assigned to a hero's strength gives him an A. Should the assigned card have the suite of the related ability, the hero would get an ability code of B. Assigning a card from the suite of Helms to the hero's strength, for instance, earns him a B code. If the card assigned to an ability comes from the same general category, either physical or mental, as its corresponding suite, the heroes have an ability code of C. Thus, a hero would receive a C for strength if that card belonged to either the suite of arrows or the suite of shields. Should a player use a card completely unrelated to a given ability, say a physical suite on a mental ability, his hero gets a code of D. The ninth suite of cards, that of dragons, has no associated ability. Therefore, if a player uses a card from the suite for one of his hero's abilities, the ability gains a code of X. While the hero's numeric ability score may indicate a high natural aptitude in the particular area, his code of X shows he has no chance to study or practice the arts associated with it. The sidebar on the next page details what each type of code means for each ability. In general terms, however, the codes can be explained as follows. Code A. Complete familiarity. A hero with an ability code of A has complete access to all the powers and or skills associated with a given ability. For example, in the case of strength, this code indicates a great familiarity with melee combat and weapons, allowing the hero to use any melee weapon he desires. Code B, sound familiarity. A hero with a code of B assigned to an ability has familiarized himself quite well with the powers or skills based on that ability. He has more knowledge in these areas that the average person but some topics still remain closed to him. Continuing with the example of strength, a hero with a B rating cannot employ weapons rated very heavy, like the Great Sword. Code C, Average Familiarity. An ability code of C indicates that the hero has some familiarity with areas that relate to the ability in question, but about as much as the average person. Such a code in strength lets the hero use up to medium me uh, weight melee weapons. Code D, Restricted familiarity. If the hero has a rating of D in a given ability, he has only a passing familiarity with its related powers and skills. For one reason or another, he has learned very little in that area. A restricted familiarity in strength, for example, indicates that the hero can use only light or very light melee weapons. Code X. No familiarity. 
heroes with an ability code of X have received no training at all in the skills associated with that ability. In the case of strength, the person could use only very light melee weapons in combat. So before we go to special ability codes, let's look at the chart here. Physical ability codes, players select weapons, armors, and shields in step nine of hero creation. Coordination, missile weapons and shields are described in appendix three. And I'm not gonna read through these, but I'm gonna give you ample time to look at them if you're curious. Agility has to do with shields. Dexterity has to do with missile weapons. Physique, melee weapons and armor are described in Appendix 3. So, endurance deals with armor. Strength deals with melee weapons. And you can quickly see how important these codes end up being. Mental ability codes. Where appropriate, players select schools and spheres of magic for their heroes, as well as acute and diminished senses, in Step 6 of the hero creation. Intellect. Chapter 5 describes the element uh, 11 schools of sorcery. And you can see that reason has everything to do with the schools of sorcery, how much you know. So if you're going to play a mage, you better have an A. Perception it deals with your senses. Essence, chapter 5, discusses the nine mystic spheres. And you can see that spirit deals with the mystic spheres. Of course, that's like cleric or divine magic, for example. And then presence is everything to do with leadership. And you can see that it's pretty important here. Special ability codes. A hero might enjoy various special skills or powers based on his ability codes in reason, perception, and spirit. Magic use. Players of heroes who can use sorcery or mysticism, codes of A or B in reason or spirit, should select their schools and spheres of magic at this point and write their heroes' spell points in the blank squares next to the appropriate abilities. Chapter 5 offers details. Acute and diminished senses. Some heroes are blessed with the eyes of an eagle, while others are cursed with weak vision. A hero with an excellent perception code is assumed to have one or two acute senses, while a poor cold code results in a diminished sense or two. In game terms, a hero with an A perception code has two exceptional senses, while one with a B code has a single outstanding sense. On the other end of the spectrum, a hero with a D code has one diminished sense, while an X in perception gives a hero two or I'm um, sorry, gives a hero two players. What? What? An X in perception gives a hero two players choice, two players choose their senses for their heroes. What? That doesn't make any sense at all. So anyway, an X means you have two diminished senses. Whenever a hero is called upon to attempt an action involving an acute sense, the player reduces the difficulty of that action by one degree. If the sense involved in the action is diminished, he increases the difficulty by one degree. Thus, an elf with acute vision attempting the average action of spotting an easy ship on the horizon would find the task easy. If the nearsighted dwarf in his party attempted this task, it would prove challenging. Chapter 3 explains the rules for actions. Exactly when an acute or diminished sense affects an action is up to the narrator. As a rule, however, they do not alter combat or spellcasting actions. Step 7. Race. Kryn is a world of heroes, certainly, but not all of them are human. 
Across all of Ancelon, and in the realms beyond it, men share their home with dwarves, elves, kender, minotaurs, and countless other races. The heroes in the Fifth Age game reflect this diversity. The player chooses a race for his hero, though the narrator may rule some races unacceptable in an adventure for one reason or another. Novice players should play humans in their first adventure. Later, when they have grown familiar with the game, and with role-playing in general, they can move on to playing dwarves, elves, or any of the races presented, starting on page 19. The chart in Appendix 1 can help players select a race quickly. Score and Code Requirements To qualify for most races, a hero must meet certain requirements, such as minimum or maximum ability scores, and codes. Assigning the human race to a hero involves no special requirements, Players who don't select another race are assumed to have human heroes. Normally, if a hero does not possess a minimum score or code listed for a given race, they may not select it. However, a player may opt to reduce one of his hero ability codes in order to raise an ability score enough to make the hero eligible for the desired race. Players can lower only codes of A or B in this way. Reducing a code by one allows the player to increase an ability score by one. For example, say a player wants his hero to be a centaur, but his strength score is only five. The minimum requirement is seven, so he must reduce one of his ability codes two grades from A to C or B to D to earn the additional two points of strength. He also could reduce two codes by one grade each. Players may not elevate a character's ability codes to meet the minimum racial requirements. If a hero's codes do not qualify him for a specific race at this time, the player may not select it. After all, non-human heroes should be fairly uncommon, even in Kryn. If a hero's ability scores or codes are too high to qualify him for this desired race, a player can reduce them voluntarily to the listed maximum, he may not increase other scores or codes as a result, though. Reduce lost, I'm sorry, reduced points are lost. Step 8. Roll. Adopting a character archetype, such as a knight or a spy, can help a player really roleplay his, his hero with ease. Such an archetype is called a role. Playing a role encourages a depth of character in all the heroes of a game. A hero's role indicates what he did and learned prior to the adventure. It also suggests something about his background and the kinds of people that influenced him as a child. A player must decide upon a role for his hero with the narrator's help. Because a role represents knowledge, skills, and habits a hero acquired during his youth, players cannot discard or change them without a good reason. The characters mentioned in the Dusk or Dawn sourcebook provide a wealth of example for roles, as do the characters in the fiction of the Dragonlance saga. A hero can be a Knight of Salamnia, or Tachesis, a war wizard, healer, mariner, spy, bard, and so on. A player should choose a role appropriate to his hero's race. For instance, the role of Pyromancer, fire sorcerer, would be unusual for a dwarf hero, as dwarves naturally dislike magic. Likewise, the role should fit with the hero's established personality and ability scores and codes. The role of a knight calls for a strong hero. Therefore, he should have several high physical ability scores and codes, as well as a demeanor and nature indicating his devotion to the principles of knightly honor. 
Based on his role, the hero should receive special advantages and disadvantages in play, as determined by the player and narrator together. For instance, the role of a healer might prevent a hero from initi um, initiating a lethal attack against a foe due to his concern for preserving life. However, the healer would receive a benefit too, perhaps the ability to recognize any ailment or a strong resistance to disease. Step 9. Arms and Armor Now that the players have determined their hero's ability codes, race, and role, they select appropriate weapons and armor from the chart in Appendix 2. If the adventure will involve the heroes fighting some extra tough monsters such as ogres or dragons, the narrator may urge them each to select one magical weapon to start with. Chapter 5 describes magical arms and armor. Step 10, Final Touches. Lastly, players should complete the rest of their hero sheets using their imagination to fill in personal information, descriptions, and backgrounds. Every hero should have at least one distinguishing physical feature, like bright red hair or an unusual scar on his cheek. Rather than establishing these details now, narrators may permit them to develop over the course of play. Tailor-made heroes. Once players have become more familiar with the hero creation and want to shape a specific type of hero, they can change the order of the steps. For instance, choosing a hero's race or role first instead of personality can let the player tailor card assignments to fit the requirements of the chosen race or role. And you all saw that if you watch the um, session zero for the saga game I'm uh, beginning to run next week called uh, Forget the Kender, that uh, offers perfect examples of creating characters in saga system live with digital cards on a virtual tabletop and uh, all the players going through the process for the very first time. So you get all the questions answered and you get to see the entire process done. It's a very interesting uh, type of character creation process. Very, very different than Dungeons and Dragons. I appreciate that, Arrakis. Thank you. I inspire you to get excited to play. Growth of a Hero. Wait, that's not chapter two, is it? No. As time goes by, heroes acquire more experience and a greater understanding of the world around them. This growth translates into an increased ability to face the dangers of an adventurer's life and the demands of a hero's heart. In game terms, a hero shows his accumulation of experience in two ways. More quests! <laughs> Upon completing each mission, the narrator should let players record an increase in their hero's number of completed quests on their hero sheet. Exactly what event denotes the end of a particular quest is up to the narrator. Generally, the end of an adventure marks the conclusion of an important storyline in a campaign, something akin to the completion of a novel. A hero's number of quests determines the size of a player's hand of cards and governs the hero's reputation rating, refer to the chart on page 11. The more quests a hero completes, the more cards his player can hold in his hand of fate. A larger hand of cards, of course, increases the likelihood that a player will have a good card to use when an important situation arises in the game. For example, when a hero with 10 quests under his belt completes an 11th, he goes from champion to master. The player now holds a hand of 6 cards rather than 5. Ability Scores and Codes When a hero moves up in reputation, he can try to improve in one ability. 
After recording his hero's improved reputation on his hero sheet, the player selects the one ability score he hopes to improve. He then flips over the top card of the fate deck. If the value of the card is higher than his ability score, he increases the score by one point. If the card is a 9 and its suit matches the suit associated with the ability, the player can raise the hero's code one grade two. Hero Races The following pages describe the races of heroes in the Fifth Age game. Centaurs, Dwarves, Elves, Half-Elves, Gnomes, Human, Kender, and Minotaurs. Centaurs. Oh, this isn't new, um, Albert Witch. This is actually really, really old. <laughs> this is before 3rd edition came out. Right after 2nd edition uh, pretty much ended. Centaurs. The half-equine, half-human centaurs are one of Kryn's proudest and most noble races. They live predominantly in Duntolik, a realm of rolling grasslands south of the New Sea. Like other races, centaurs have emerged in the Fifth Age to defend their lands and their place in history from the great dragons. Description. Physically, centaurs are fascinating, having the bodies of a great horse with a human torso, head, and arms. Long hair runs down their back like a mane. These creatures boast marvelous diversity in appearance. Their equine portion ranges from blonde to black and rarely dappled. Although generally dark-haired, centaurs have a skin tone anywhere from a ruddy tan to rich brown to lightest gray-pink to ebony. Many have brown or blue eyes, but some have black-green or even violet. Centaurs do not understand other races' contempt of, I'm sorry, concept of physical modesty. Thus, they often go about unclothed. They do enjoy jewelry and decorative garment, garments, however, and choose such items to enhance their appearance rather than for any functional purpose. Role-playing. Proud centaurs remain ever conscious of their appearance. Most find any disfigurement from a battle scar to a tattoo quite unsightly. As marked hedonists, they look upon any uh, every day as a chance to experience new pleasures, hear new songs, and undertake new amorous pursuits. Indeed, one would be hard-pressed to find a more passionate race. These creatures get along well with Kender, although they find members of uh, that race far too flighty to accept as equals. Centaurs often befriend elves as they share certain traits, such as love of archery and aspects of physical grace and beauty. They see dwarves and minotaurs as ugly, stubborn, quarrelsome folk to avoid wherever possible. Requirements To qualify as a centaur, a hero must have strength, endurance, and perception scores of seven at minimum. Noted for their hedonistic outlook, centaurs are seldom considered great thinkers. Thus, they have a maximum reason score of 7. Since centaurs find armor bulky and uncomfortable to wear, they never train to use it. No centaur hero can have an endurance coat other than X. Centaurs practice archery almost from birth. As children, they dream of becoming great marksmen. Thus, a hero must have an ability code of A in dexterity to qualify for this race. Advantages Centaurs number among the most skilled archers on Kryn. Therefore, whenever they attack using a self-bow or recurve bow, rather than a crossbow, any card the player selects is automatically considered trump. The presence of a centaur has a soothing influence over horses, donkeys, mules, etc. Thus, no such beast will panic as long as a centaur remains near enough to speak to it in soothing tones. 
This ability cannot counter magically induced fear or panic. Disadvantages. Centaurs practice only limited sorcery and mysticism. As such, no card played for them to cast a spell is ever trump. A centaur's archery skill has its price. These master archers spend so long learning their craft, they never study the use of other missile weapons. Therefore, centaur heroes have a dexterity code of X when using a missile weapon other than a self-bow or recurve bow. Dwarves. Builders of one of Kryn's most advanced civilizations, dwarves are noted for their determination, stubbornness, and industriousness. The two major dwarf subraces, mountain dwarves and hill dwarves, look physically very similar, but clash at times due to cultural differences. Mountain dwarves live primarily in the region of Thorbarden, a great dwarven kingdom beneath the Karolais Mountains south of Abanasinia and west of Duntolik. Other mountain dwarves make their homes in the underground Kalkist Mountains, realm of Thoradin and in Kaolin, nestled beneath the Garnet Range. Thorbarden dwarves have always been fairly isolationist and slow to trust strangers. In fact, heroes should encounter very few Thorbarden natives, since these dwarves sealed their homeland two years ago to safeguard themselves from the green dragon Berylinthernox. The largest concentration of dwarves in Ancelon lie in Abanasinia, where many fled following the sealing of Thorbarden, and in the hills surrounding the Garnet Mountains. Description Dwarves are a stocky folk, averaging only four feet in height but weighing fully 150 pounds. Male dwarves boast thick beards, which they display as proud as any peacock shows its feathers. Many male dwarves begin to go bald when they reach the age of 50 or 60, however. Female dwarves also have more facial hair than typical for Ancelon's other races, though it seldom amounts to more than a downy fringe. One might see a dwarf woman with a respectable beard, but such a rare beauty comes only at along once in a generation. Most mountain dwarves have deep, resonant voices that bring to mind the thundering echoes of fallen hammers that fill the great caverns in which they dwell. These dwarves tend to have light brown skin and bright eyes, but these and other features vary depending on their thane or clan. Hylar. Dwarves have dark brown or black hair, which often turns gray or white by the age of 50. These dwarves are natural leaders. Long-armed, cliff-dwelling Thiwar dwarves have bone-white features with bluish undertones and a penchant for cruelty and cunning. Dark, cave-dwelling uh, Dergar feel uncomfortable in bright light and, like the Thiwar, have paler complexions than other mountain dwarves. The dignified Dewar give respect where it's due and serve as excellent merchants and builders. They also craft fine jewelry. Hill dwarves, including the civilized Nidar and the rather wild Klar, are somewhat taller and leaner than their cousins, but every bit as tenacious and willful, thanks to their exposure to the weather and sun. Their skin tans darker than that of mountain dwarves, Hill dwarves like their clothing brighter than mountain dwarves do, though it still seems fairly drab to humans. Other unofficial dwarven races, such as Agar, gully dwarves, are pl or plague-ridden Zakar of Thoradin, are not suggested for heroes. Role-playing Dwarf heroes are determined and rugged. While these folk might cr uh, grumble about hardships, they have come to accept them and would never shirk an unpleasant task. 
Most mountain dwarves today have enough of the world and its problems. Thorbarn's dwarves blame men and elves for the disasters that have befallen Anselon in recent years and have retreated into the confines of their sealed mountain home. Outsiders also find the dwarves of Caelin and Thoradin suspicious of those they do not know and very slow to make friends. Once someone has been accepted by these folk, however, he is one a friend for life who will stand by him to the end. Mountain dwarves are assumed to come from Caelin or Thoradin unless they are exiles who failed to answer the call to return to Thorbarden before it was sealed. Hill dwarves are more outgoing. They favor the world's comforts and especially good food and strong drink. Therefore, they tend to get along better with other races than do the mountain dwarves, uh, though outsiders still tend to think of them as obstinate. Neither subrate of dwarves gets along very well with elves, though they view the wild Kaganesti more favorably than other elf subraces. Dwarves generally find Kender irritating and troublesome, a view many might agree with. Centaurs and Minotaurs seem fairly well liked in dwarven circles. Though the dwarves deem the former too flighty and the latter too fond of rules and regulations. Dwarves, especially mountain dwarves, view gnomes almost as kindred spirits, an industrious though loony people who could learn a great deal from a dwarf's solemnity. Requirements The compact build of dwarves as well as their hardy constitutions makes them as rugged and sturdy as any race on Kryn. As such, only heroes with strength and endurance scores of six a minimum qualify to be dwarves. Conversely, a dwarf's body structure makes him less nimble than those of other races. Thus, dwarves have a maximum agility and dexterity score of eight. Dwarves seem reluctant to practice the science of sorcery. As such, these heroes never have an ability code higher than B in reason. Advantages The great constitution of a dwarf makes him very resistant to poisons and sorcery, though not mysticism. Whenever a dwarf is forced to resist such an attack, the card he plays is always considered trump, regardless of his actual suit. Disadvantages Many people view dwarves as stubborn and dour, a reputation not far from the truth. In game terms, these traits affect a dwarf's ability to interact with other races. Whenever he attempts an action that involves persuasion, charm, or similar aspects of personality, no card he plays is ever considered trump, unless he's interacting with other dwarves. Affecting actions include haggling over a price, attempting to win a favor of a non-dwarf woman, or convincing the constabulatory of his innocence. Constabulary. Uh, okay, so Michael asks, are there minis for gameplay? No. Actually, Dragonlance 5th Age, the saga system, does not encourage the use of minis. It prefers the theater of the mind, because it doesn't deal with things like um, five-foot movement rates, it references actions instead, such as closing range or opening range. So everything is determined in abstract rather than literal minutia like you saw in 3rd edition and a little bit in 1st and 2nd edition. So this is, you know, arguably the polar opposite of 4th edition, where everything was just, you know, on the battle map and you had to be super specific about radius and spell effects and stuff. This is much more abstract. And it actually talks about it later in a different chapter. Elves. The elves call themselves the firstborn of Kryn. Many agree that they were created during the Age of Starbirth to embody all that was good. As a race, the long-lived elves divide themselves into four distinct groups, each of which has its own separate lineage and culture. 
The oldest branch of elves are the Sylvanisti, who dwell in a great enchanted forest on Anslon's southeastern coast. The Quilinisti, who succeeded from Sylvanisti more than, I'm sorry, seceded from Sylvanisti more than 2,000 years ago, after the Kinslayer War, live in the lush woodlands that bear their names south of Abanicinia. A third subrace of elves, the wild Kaganisti, were forced from their homes by the coming of the great dragons, and now live in scattered enclaves, particularly in the isles of the southern Syrian Sea. Aquatic races of elves, the deep-dwelling Dargonisti and the Shoal Demernisti, live beneath the waves of the southern Karain Ocean and amid the isles of the Syrian Sea. However, the blue-skinned sea elves rarely make effective heroes due to their limited habitat. Description. Physically, elves resemble slight humans with exceptional beauty and grace. Perhaps the most instantly recognizable characteristics are their tapered, pointed ears, slender features, and complete lack of facial hair. The Savinisti have blue or hazel eyes, hair that never grows darker than honey, and loose, flowing garments. Their fair complexion often makes them seem almost radiant. The Quilinisti have somewhat darker features, but their hair and eyes never deepen quite to the shade of brown. The Quilinisti favor men... Uh, Quinisti men favor elegant tunics and trousers, while women wear delicate dresses. Kaganisti are built more strongly than other elven subraces, though even they look slight in comparison to men. They have dark, often black hair and hazel eyes. These uncivilized elves often decorate their bodies with intricate painted or tattooed designs. Roleplaying All elvish subraces seem rather elitist. They have to make an effort to welcome members of other races into their company. In addition, all elves love nature, beauty, and find magic fascinating. The above qualities seem most pronounced among the Savanisti, who consider all other races lesser creatures, even other elves. They usually seem snobbish and arrogant, though they might try to shroud this behavior beneath a cloak of formality and etiquette. Because these elves have enveloped their forest kingdom in a magical shield to keep it safe from green dragons, most of the Sylvanisti whom heroes will encounter are from Silvamori on southern Ergoth and the isle, uh, islands of the southern, sorry, South Syrian Sea. A little tongue twister there. Though more tolerant than their brothers to the east, the Quilinisti still regard non-elves and even the Kaganisti as inferior. For the most part, however, Quilinisti retain the good manners to avoid lording their beliefs over those traveling with them. Like the Sylvanisti, Quilinisti are seen infrequently about Anselon due to their dragon overlord's border restrictions. Kaganisti also look down on other races of the world, but for different reasons. Just as many folks see them as savage, the Kaganisti view the so-called civilized peoples of the world as weak and tame. To appreciate what is fair in the world, one Kaganisti saying goes, do not isolate yourself from that which is harsh. Elves get along well enough with Kender and Centaur, though they consider both races flighty and even a touch barbaric. They generally do not enjoy the company of dwarves or minotaurs, seeing both as gruff and unpleasant. To say whether elves like or dislike half-elves is difficult. It would be truer to say they barely acknowledge them. Requirements To qualify as an elf, a hero must have a minimum score of 6 in agility, dexterity, and presence. In addition, elves have a maximum score of 8 in strength and endurance. Elves as talented archers and skilled swordsmen must have an ability code of A or B in both strength and dexterity. Members of this race never wear exceptionally heavy armor, however, and they 
restrict themselves to lighter shields. Thus, no hero with an ability code higher than C in endurance or agility can be an elf. Advantages In light of their swordsmanship, whenever elves use a sword or bow to attack an enemy, any card they play is considered trump, regardless of its actual suit. In addition to their skill with swords, the elves have legendary senses. Whenever an elf attempts to perception check in a forest, any card he plays is trump. Disadvantages An elf's haughty manners do not sit well with most other creatures. Many view them as self-important and arrogant. Therefore, no card playing to attempt a presence action involving a non-elf is ever trump. This qualifier does not apply to presence actions made to resist the effects of a mystic spell. Half-elves While half-elves possess racial traits of both humans and elves, they often find themselves accepted by neither group. Nearly of human height, half-elves are a bit stockier than elves, yet they move with a grace that humans envy. Male half-elves can grow beards. Half-elves must meet two of the three elf ability score minimums and one of the maximums. They have a strength code of A or B in either strength or dexterity. A half-elf hero gains one elf advantage, but receives no trump bonus for actions involving elves. <laughs> Thanks, man. <clears throat> Gnomes. The Gnomish race has a, more, a most curious and troubled history. Even before the Greystone forged many of Kryn's other non-human races, see Dusker Dawn Chapter 1, they have fallen under the shadow of a great curse that has belittled their people for centuries. Ever since the Age of Dreams, the largest concentration of gnomes has remained in the vast network of caverns beneath Mount Nevermind, an extinct volcano west of Ergoth. During the Summer of Chaos, when Mount Nevermind exploded due to a malfunction of gnomish war machines, this race was all but swept out of existence, making gnomes among the rarest of Kryn's non-human folk. The Age of Mortals has blessed the world with two races of gnomes. The first, the Tinker Gnomes, still dwell in the shattered cities beneath Mount Nevermind. A new sub-race, the so-called Thinker Gnomes, have surfaced in the wake of the Chaos War. During the Age of Dreams, Reork's God of the Forge served as teacher and protector to a clan of craftsmen. However, when they grew proud and vain, Reork's cursed his chosen, transforming them into a race of short folk who found it impossible to master the inventive genius in their hearts. Thus, the machines were chaotic and prone to failure. They became Tinker Gnomes. Thinker Gnomes, on the other hand, have been freed of this curse as a, part, as a parting gift to the world he forged, Reorks called a group of gnomes to leave the ruined Mount Nevermind. He lifted his curse from these clans so they might seek knowledge and wisdom throughout the world. No one should continue viewing these gnomes as amusing mad scientists. While retaining some of their charming gnomish qualities, the thinker gnomes have become the masterful inventors they have always pictured themselves to be. Description Adult gnomes of either gender stand between 30 and 40 inches in height. They look stocky, though not as hefty as dwarves, and weigh roughly 50 pounds. They're noted for their brown leather-textured skin, soft white hair, and blue or violet eyes. Gnomish men always almost grow curly white beards, but the women lack facial hair. Male gnomes tend to bald as they age. Gnomes dress in bright colors, often appearing unduly festive to the eyes of the more conservative races. Tool belts and similar items adorn the garb of these craftsmen at all times. Role-playing. 
Both Tinker and Thinker gnomes are clever people, with a curiosity sometimes likened to that of Kender. They find themselves drawn to investigate mysteries, especially those involving complex devices or traps. Gnomes admire the keen minds of the elves, the craftsmanship of the dwarves, and the curiosity of the Kender. At the same time, they consider each of these races too easily distracted from the pursuit of science and technology. Centaurs and Minotaurs remain incomprehensible to gnomes, both too rugged and too brutal for comfort. Furthermore, neither race is particularly noted for its craftsmanship. Requirements In recognition of gnomes' cleverness, heroes must have reason and perception scores of six at minimum to select this race. In addition, as gnomes are noted for their ability to do fine work, heroes of this race must have minimum dexterity scores of seven. Physically, gnomes are both diminutive and weak. Therefore, a gnome's hero have maximum scores of four in both strength and endurance. The gnomish physique makes it difficult for them to master the use of heavy weapons. Thus, no gnome hero may have codes greater than C in any physical ability. This is the campaign book for Dragonlance Fifth Age, uh, just to be very clear about what I'm reading here. So this is only applicable to the saga system of Dragonlance Fifth Age, not the third edition, advanced uh, Dungeons and Dragons third edition Age of Mortals books. So this is just the card game. Advantages. Both gnomish subraces have their own special gifts, though neither group views the other as especially talented. Tinker gnomes remain masters, if one could call them that, of large, overly complex machines. Any card they play when building, operating, maintaining, or otherwise dealing with such devices is automatically considered trump. Any device too large to be easily portable falls into the Tinker Gnome's purview. Siege engines belong to this category, as do windmills, water wheels, and so on. However, the machine works as planned only if the card of the hero flips for his trump bonus matches the suit, I'm sorry, the suite of the original card played. If they don't match, the machine still works. However, it works in an unorthodox and unexpected way. Take the gnomish siege on Castle Gargath during the Age of Dreams as an example. For this war effort, gnomes brought out an enormous siege engine. It fell over, toppling a tree, which in turn breached the castle wall. Thinker gnomes are the masters of smaller, less flashy constructions. They specialize in clockwork mechanisms, spring-driven devices, and other compact, compact technologies. Whenever a thinker gnome deals with such devices, any card he plays becomes trump. Thinker gnomes can probably maintain or build any object small enough for someone to reasonably carry around. Locks and map traps, uh, many traps, fall into this category, making thinker gnomes very skilled burglars when they wish to be. Disadvantages. Just as each subrace of gnomes boasts a special area of expertise, so too does each fall subject to its own limitations. Reorx's curse makes it impossible for tinker gnomes to create the reliable, efficient devices of their dreams. Whenever a tinker gnome fails in an attempt to build, repair, or operate a device, the player must treat it as a mishap. In most cases, the result of such mishaps are minor. The hero decides to make one final adjustment to the machine and, wonder of wonders, he breaks it. Of course, attempts with dangerous devices might lead to more severe mishap results.
Thinker gnomes work far more slowly than their cousins, taking time to make sure that every aspect of their labors is perfect before moving on to their next project. Because of this penchant, any action involving thinker gnomes and machines takes twice as long to complete as it would for a member of any other race. In other words, if the gnome uses his trump card advantage for the task, it takes him a long time to complete his work. Uh, thank you, Arrakis. I appreciate that. Yeah, hit the like button if you guys, I don't know, like it. <laughs> Humans. The most common race on Kryn in the Age of Mortals is mankind. Able to adapt to a wide array of climates and gifted with an almost indomitable spirit, humanity is spread to all corners of Anslan and beyond. Most scholars divide the men and women of Kryn into two groups. The first they call barbarians, although that term is not without its detractors. The rest of humanity falls into a perhaps inappropriately named category of civilized men. In essence, the barbarians of Anselon are those who do not live in cities or other large settlements. Often nomadic, they may have less skill in crafts that require formal training, but they seem in touch with the natural world to a degree that no civilized man could equal. The most powerful barbarian realms in the Fifth Age are Abanasinia and Duntalik, or Duntolik, though many tribes of seafarers, Arctic nomads, and other uncivilized folks might argue with that judgment. Civilized men include members of the knightly orders, the sages of the world, and residents of the proud kingdoms of Ergoth and Salamnia. While their less advanced brothers might consider them soft and weak, civilized men have skills and scientific advances that certainly make up for their lack of outdoor hardiness. Description If one must choose a single word to describe the men and women of Ancelon, it would be diverse. From the dark-skinned, black-haired citizens of Ergoth and Nordmar, to the pale, blue-eyed, blonde-haired folk of the south and central continent, mankind has adapted to every climate and ecological niche. On the average, a healthy human man stands five and a half feet tall and weighs under 200 pounds. Women are shorter and lighter. Members of certain barbarian clans, though, can reach a height of seven feet, while others seldom stand taller than five feet. The beautiful features of a barbarian human grow weathered by middle age thanks to their constant exposure to the elements. The details of their appearance vary according to their native habitat. Mountain, plains, forest, and desert barbarians have dark hair, deep brown eyes, and golden tanned skin. They wear clothing crafted from furs, leathers, and skins. Ice barbarians have red or light brown hair, blue eyes, and pale skin. They also wear clothing made from animal hide. Sea barbarians, the most civilized of this division of humans, dress flamboyantly in garb made of woven fabrics. Their skin tones normally range from light brown to gleaming black. These barbarians, descendants of the lost kingdom of Istar, are as volatile as the sea, generally boisterous, but always courageous. Civilized humans can echo any of the above physical types. Mannerisms differ by individual and geographic area, but most civilized men dress in stylish woven garments that mark the wearer's standing, wealth, and profession. Role-playing As with the Heroes of the Lance, most adventuring parties in the Fifth Age game are predominantly human. As these people are not unlike the men and women of the real world, players can expect to see any manner of normal human behavior. Players should allow their hero's nature and demeanor cards to guide their behavior. 
In addition, they should give their heroes a distinctive characteristic that adds to their personality without detracting from the game. Examples might include an unusual accent, hobby, or nervous habit. Requirements Because this game uses humans as its standard, this race has no set requirements. If a player does not select one of the other races for his hero, then the hero is assumed to be human. To decide whether his hero has a civilized or barbarian background, a player should first total his physical ability scores, then his mental ability scores. If the hero's physical scores total more than his mental scores, he is a barbarian. These humans generally spend so much time just fighting to stay alive in the harsh wilderness, they have little opportunity for schooling, hence the lower mental score total. If the reverse is true, the hero comes from civilized stock. Should the two volumes come out more or less equal, within four or five points of each other, the hero may be either civilized or barbarian. In addition, players of human heroes should keep in mind certain reasonable ability code limits. Perhaps they do not wear their heavy armor of knights, cavaliers, and professional soldiers. No barbarian hero can have an ability code of A for endurance. Civilized heroes, on the other hand, suffer a reduction in their sensitivity because of their artificial environment. Thus, no civilized human hero may have a perception code of A. In both cases, players whose hero codes is too high must reduce it to the appropriate level. There are certain benefits to growing up in the wilds. By the same token, those who matured in civilized regions gain advantages from their situation. Demands of their lifestyle... <laughs> what? From their situation. Players of Barbarian Heroes may select any physical ability score and increase it by one point at the time of hero creation. This bonus reflects the hardy nature of Barbarians and the demands of their lifestyle. No player can increase a score beyond nine. These playing uh, civilized human... Those playing civilized human characters have a similar advantage. They may increase one of the hero's mental ability scores by a point. This advantage reflects the better education and easier life in civilized area. No score may be raised beyond nine. Disadvantages. The demanding life of barbarians deservedly results in an increase in their physical characteristics. On the other hand, it limits the amount of time they can spend learning a trade or in study. As such, all players of barbarian heroes must reduce one mental ability score by a single point, but never to less than one. Civilized heroes are assumed to have spent far more time than barbarian folk in school or as apprentices, therefore anyone playing such a hero must reduce one of his physical ability scores by a point. No score should fall below one, however. Kender. Everyone's favorite character, right? <laughs> hey, Palm Tree. What's up, CCR4? Thanks for joining live. Chris, great to see ya. Anyone else I missed? Stanky. <laughs> nice name. <laughs> Good to see you. Thanks for joining live. All right. Various sources have called the race of Kender both a blessing and a curse to the nations of Ancelon. Some find their lighthearted nature and childlike spirit a delightful change of pace from the dour dwarves or the haughty elves. Others have noted with disdain Kender's apparent inability to take life seriously and their tendency to acquire things to do uh, things that do not belong to them. Whatever view one takes, however, it is impossible to overlook these little people of Kryn. In ages past, the Kenders spread throughout much of Ancelon, with their major population centers being Kendermore in the east and Hilo in the west. After the coming of Malastrix, however, the former nation was swept out of existence. 
Almost 30 years ago, refugees from Kendermore fled west in the Kender Flight, crossing thousands of miles of hostile terrain to seek haven in Hilo. The Kender found themselves welcomed by their western brothers. In time, however, it became clear that refugees had been changed by their traumatic experience. Gone were the ever-carefree smiles and sparkling eyes. Those who had seen the great Malastrix had felt something no Kender before had ever known. Fear. In recent years, the veterans of the Kender flight have formed their own communities and distanced themselves from the other Kender of Hilo. The folk of Anselon call them afflicted Kender, in contrast with true Kender. Theirs is one of the saddest stories to emerge in the aftermath of the Chaos War. Description The Kender are a small and slight race, standing between three and a half and four feet tall. Though slender, most seem athletic and well-muscled, weighing just under 100 pounds. Female Kender are only slightly smaller than males. Most true Kender are peaceful folk who enjoy the pastoral life of a comfortable home in the company of their own playful kind. However, there comes a time, usually around the age of 20, when they find themselves yearning to travel and explore the wonders of the world. During the few years they remain in the grip of this wanderlust, the Kender go adventuring with wild abandon. Players should assume that most Kender heroes are experiencing this phase of life. When the wanderlust passes, however, the Kender happily return to their homes and live out the rest of their days in the company of friends and loved ones. While there is no physical difference between true Kender and their afflicted kindred, one can tell them apart nevertheless. The eyes of a true Kender gleam brightly, full of mischief and curiosity, while those of the afflicted Kender look hard and serious, ever watchful and cautious. Also, afflicted Kender move more carefully and silently, as if conserving their energy for a sudden flight should the need arise. True Kender dress, tend to dress in the sort of bright, gregarious fashions one might expect of such an outgoing folk. They rely on their agility rather than armor or shields to survive in combat. However, afflicted Kender clothe themselves in darker colors, favoring earth tones that could serve as camouflage in a crisis. They do not shy away from armor, though they will not wear anything heavier than chainmail and do not employ shields. In addition to the traditional weapons of the Kender, the afflicted also favor the deadly arms of men. The Kender probably suffer more than any other race during the Dragon Purge. Their numbers were cut in more than half, and many of those who remain alive carry scars both emotional and physical, to remind them of the last three decades. Role-playing True Kender act light-heartedly and almost childlike in their curiosity and playfulness. They know nothing of fear or similar emotions. A true Kender hero should always be in the mood to investigate mysteries, examine newly found objects, and generally experience the wonders of the world. Such purity in residence of Kendermore was tainted by the evil of Malastrix, while afflicted Kender by no means act timid. They behave cautiously. An afflicted Kender has felt fear and realized he has no taste for it. Kender admire elves, holding them almost in awe for their grace, beauty, and keen minds. Of course, they do feel that these oh-so-serious folk should try to have a little more fun. The more rugged races of the world, such as centaurs, dwarves, and minotaurs, Kender consider too violent and stern. Still, they do provide good subjects for practical jokes. A Kender in the company of such creatures feels it is his duty to show them how to laugh a little. Of course, his attempts usually don't go over too well. 
Kinder look upon gnomes as wonderful creatures, thinking of them almost as kin. Of course, they prefer the tinkers to the thinkers, probably due to the chaos generally associated with the former group. Requirements. Kender are graceful and agile creatures. More than one scholar has likened them to spider monkeys to reflect this quality. Kender heroes must have a minimum score of seven in both dexterity and agility. A Kender's slight build makes him less rugged or physically powerful than many other races. In game terms, this limits the Kender hero to strength and endurance scores of a six at maximum. True Kender have minimum perception scores of six to reflect their keen interest in the world around them and their curious nature. Afflicted Kender, on the other hand, seem more intense than curious. They must have a minimum presence score of six. All Kender have characteristics that set them apart from other races. One is their keen vision. All Kender heroes must have at least a B code for perception as, and eyesight selected as an acute sense. Kender with an A code may select another acute sense in addition to eyesight. Members of this race feel reluctant to employ armor and shields, though afflicted Kender do so at times. Therefore, true Kender have an ability code of D or less in endurance, while afflicted Kender may have a code of up to C. In addition, both groups must have an agility code of D or less. Advantages Every race in Ancelon knows about the light touch and nimble fingers of Kender. This handling ability allows them an automatic trump bonus to pick locks, disarm traps, and attempt similar tasks. Of course, they must have the tools appropriate to such endeavors. Should a Kender hero have lost his tools somewhere in his many pouches, the narrator should increase the difficulty of the action somewhat. True Kender seem quite fond of tricks and stage magic, a love that is its has its applications in less festive situations. This affinity allows Kender heroes to attempt various sleights of hand. Actions, from palming a coin to picking a pocket. When attempting such an action, any card played becomes trump. While afflicted Kender do not employ their natural talent for such whimsical pursuits as sleight of hand, they are no less graceful. Afflicted Kender's natural caution and great agility allows them to move about almost noiselessly, hide quickly and effectively, and climb even the sheerest of surfaces with ease. This makes Afflicted Kender among the most successful scouts in the world, but also enables them to masterfully sneak into an enemy's quarters or operate as deadly assassins of a foul dra um, dragon's minions. Whenever an afflicted Kender attempts to sneak about, or a similar action involving care and grace, any card played is considered trump. Disadvantages The whimsical Kender seldom devote themselves to extended periods of training or study. They are no less intelligent than other races. They merely lack academic dedication and tenacity. A Kender quickly loses interest in projects that become repetitive or boring. Indeed, in many cultures, a poor student is described as having the study habits of a kender. To reflect this fact in game terms, no kender, neither true nor afflicted, may ever have an ability code of A in any subject except perception. The length of training required to achieve this highest level of expertise, no matter what the subject, is simply beyond the limited attention span of a kender. Oh, thank you, Chris. I appreciate it, man. Minotaurs. I think this is the last race. My throat needs it to be the last race.
One of the most impressive of Prin's races is the Minotaurs. Powerful of body and rigid of thought, they always prove a force to reckon with. The greatest concentration of Minotaur civilization lives in the Blood Sea Isles, northeast of Ancelon, but, of course, Minotaur enclaves can be found elsewhere as well. These accomplished Minotaur uh, mariners have traveled farther than any other race across Crin's oceans. Description Minotaurs, a fusion of human and bull, stand seven to eight feet tall, weigh between three and four hundred pounds, and are physically powerful as they are intimidating. These creatures have long yellow-white horns, the females slightly less pronounced, thick fur covers their bodies, and instead of hair, minotaurs have manes. They range in color from reddish through every shade of brown, with rare tan, black, or white individuals. Minotaurs favor Spartan and militaristic dress. They use heavy weapons and armor, but few use shields due to their fondness for two-handed weapons. Role-playing Minotaur culture is militaristic in both form and function. From their earliest school days, the young train for war. While this schooling does tend to make them more aggressive than other hero races, its real value involves the degree of order it imposes on their lives. Every Minotaur undertaking proceeds with a clear objective and a uh, definite chain of command. Virtually every aspect of Minotaur culture is spelled out in black and white, with very few gray areas. Minotaurs see all other races as weak and inferior, though they prefer some over others. Centaurs and dwarves, for example, have earned a modicum of respect as rugged and determined folk. Elves and gnomes, on the other hand, are so weak and lacking, minotaurs barely tolerate them. Kender are, if anything, even more offensive. Not only are they feeble and puny, they have no sense of order or, um, or regimentation. Minotaurs find Kender good for target practice and little more. <laughs> what? However, mankind has proven itself worthy of a grudging acceptance. Target practice. Minotaurs consider humans second only to themselves as mariners and acknowledge that they can muster excellent military units. Requirements. Few races can match these titans for sheer power and stamina. A minotaur hero must have a minimum score of eight in strength and endurance. However, the same bulk that gives these creatures their great strength limits them in other ways. A minotaur hero has a maximum agility and dexterity scores of 5. Minotaur's intense military upbringing give them codes of B or better in strength and endurance. But, by the same token, minotaurs tend to overlook intellectual pursuits, which limits their reason or spirit codes to C or less. Advantages Minotaur seamanship makes any card played in a nautical action automatic trump. This benefit applies to actions at sea, keeping on course in a storm, and on land, determining the seaworthiness of a vessel offered for sale. Disadvantages Slow to change or accept new ideas, the arrogant minotaurs consider themselves superior to all other races. They act pushy and always insist on doing things their own way, traits that earn them little favor with other races. Whenever a minotaur uses his presence to deal with others, no card he plays is trump. The only exception involves an attempt to threaten or bully someone into obeying him in which case, ferocity earns him a trump bonus. All right, and that is the end of chapter one. I am not going to start chapter two in this session because I need to use the restroom. <laughs> Coffee and water are kicking in. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I'm going to try to do one of these tomorrow, 
And though chapter one was really, really long because it had to deal with all of the uh, mechanics of creating a character, from here on, it's much more about actions and playing the game. And then, you know, the magic one is also a pretty detailed one because that's a huge part of what this game uh, deals with. It's very complex too, which is a little annoying. That being said, I do appreciate all of your time and attention. What do you think of the gaming system? Is its focus on the hero and story worth the change in game mechanics? And would you ever run a Saga system game? Feel free to email me at info at dlsaga.com or comment below. I would like to take a moment and remind you to subscribe to this YouTube channel, ring the bell to get notified about upcoming videos, and click the like button. This all goes to help other Dragonlance fans learn about this channel and its content. This channel is all about celebrating the wonderful world of the Dragonlance Saga, and I hope you'll join me in the celebration. Thank you for watching. This has been Adam with Dragonlance Saga, and until next time, Slanjavar!